Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Bella, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. David Lanyado. Dave is a professor of cognitive and decision sciences in the Department of Experimental Psychology at UCL. He has written over a hundred articles and co-authored a textbook on the psychology of decision making. He has worked with U.S. intelligence, the U.K. government, and various legal and financial institutions, looking at methods to improve reasoning and decision making. In this episode, we discuss Dave's most recent book on the human capacity for causal reasoning and the challenges we face in evaluating evidence using criminal cases. We talked about how Bayesian inferences and Perl's hierarchy are used in the legal domain, as well as the pros and cons using causal models in decision making. Dave also shared his views on how causal models could potentially improve the performance of artificial intelligence systems. And without further ado, here's our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on the Stanford Psychology Podcast. Today, we're going to talk about your new book that just came out last month, which is titled "Explaining the Evidence: How the Mind Investigates the World." And just as the title indicated, in this book, you explain how people seek explanations of the evidence by building causal mental models of the world using criminal cases. Now, I wonder if we can start the conversation by having you introduce this book to our audience a bit more in depth. Tell us what this book is about and what inspired you to write this book. Great, thanks. Um, lovely to be here, Bella. So, I mean, the book is about how people make sense of complex evidence and what are our strengths and our weaknesses when we reason about evidence, and also how we can potentially improve our reasoning. So, for example, just to set the scene, imagine you're a juror on a murder trial, and a woman is accused of pushing her husband down the stairs, but she argues that he fell down the stairs while he was drunk. So you're going to hear a variety of arguments, witnesses potentially giving conflicting reports about what happened, and about you know the wife's character, her relationship with the husband, and then you might also get forensic experts arguing about whether the husband's injuries are best explained by a fall or a push. Somehow you've got to pull all this together and reach a verdict, which is pretty challenging. Okay, so the book looks at how we achieve this, what we do well. Um, building causal models to understand what happened, and also what we struggle at, so like evaluating multiple stories and complex evidence, and also how we might improve. So I suggest some tools and ways of thinking that might improve our reasoning, and、um, just how I came to the, to the project. I mean, it's been a long journey. I must say, writing a book is a long journey, longer than I I realised when I started. But、um, initially, I suppose I was a postdoc working on a large project on evidence. And it was great because I had leading experts in statistics, law, philosophy, psychology. So I learned from all these people, and that really got me inspired to think more about legal decision making, which I worked on. And I was also inspired by, at the time, there was a lot of causal modelling work going on, and I was inspired by that too. And then I also had a stint working with IARPA on、um, looking at intelligence analysis and reasoning, and that was another kind of further kind of like propelling me forwards. And then at some point I thought, well, look, I should try and write a book about all this kind of stuff. And、um, I focused on the legal domain because the problems are very challenging, 
but also they're, they're crucially important. You know, they can lead to miscarriages of justice. But I would argue that very similar principles, maybe the same principles, apply in everyday reasoning. And in a sense, we act as lay detectives on a daily basis. You know, even when we're trying to figure out why our cat's not eating or something like that, we have to do a bit of detective work to figure that out. Yes, that's so true. We're all detectives in our own lives. And thank you so much for the thoughtful、um, introduction and the vivid example. <laughs> Um, so before we、uh, dive in a little bit more, I think it might be a good idea for us to talk a little bit about the two foundational concepts or models that are mentioned throughout your book, which are the Bayesian inferences model and the Pearls hierarchy. Could you briefly explain what they mean and what they why they play such an important role in our reasoning? Right. Yeah, those are really good questions. I mean, I, I and they are two key things throughout the book. So Bayesian inference. I mean, simply, it's just how we update our beliefs. In the light of new evidence, and it's often called Bayesian inference because the suggestion is that we should be using Bayes' rule. So, just take a simple example. So, suppose someone's suspected of a murder, and the police find a bloody footprint at the crime scene, and it matches the suspect's trainers. Okay, so how should you update your belief in his guilt? So,、um, in a simple case, you you can measure the strength of this new evidence by comparing how likely is this evidence. If a suspect's guilty, which we assume is high, compared with how likely is this evidence if he's not guilty and someone else did it, someone else left the footprint, and the more unusual the trainer is, the greater the strength of evidence against the suspect. Okay, and Bayes' rule tells us how to update our prior beliefs before we saw the evidence, in proportion to the strength of the evidence. Okay, so I have made a few simplifications here. For example,、um, perhaps the suspect was there, but he didn't commit the crime, or maybe someone else wore his shoes, and you know, there's lots of other things. And and then once you kind of try and deal with these complexities, we we probably have to use Bayesian methods. Okay, and this kind of leads us in now to、um, the first rung of Pearl's hierarchy. So Pearl gave a kind of framework, three levels, if you like, different types of causal inference. And at rung one, he he calls it seen. So you kind of observe evidence, and then you infer. You know what happened, and so the, the example here is maybe you have symptoms and you infer if you've got a disease, or you have clues to a crime and you try and infer who did it. So this is more at rung one. It's kind of it's very much like just standard prob- probabilistic inference. Okay. Now where things get a bit more interesting is rung two, which he calls doing. And here you have to, if you like, predict the consequences of actions, things that you might do, which might actually change the system you're trying to understand. Okay. So a simple example might be taking a drug to try and improve a health condition, or、uh, maybe be effective installing a new alarm on whether that will change the chances of whether or not you're burgled. Okay, and what's interesting is this goes beyond purely probabilistic reasoning, because we need to take account of how our actions might actually change the system. Okay, and a crucial difference here is between, let's say, when I test an alarm, getting it to sound because I'm testing it. Compared with when I hear an alarm and I think, oh, someone might be burgling my car. So if I was just testing the alarm and I heard the alarm, I wouldn't think someone was burgling my car. Whereas when I hear the alarm, I think, oh, maybe someone's burgling my car. Okay, so that's rung two. Now rung three, which is if you like the pinnacle, the highest level, is when we engage in what he was imagining or counterfactual thinking, which allows us to address what-if questions. And you know, like a simple medical example,、um, I take a drug. And my health improves, but what would have happened if I hadn't taken the drug? 
perhaps my health would have improved anyway. So that's an important counterfactual question. Also, to take a crime, crime example, suppose one person stabs another in a, in a bar and brawl, but the person who stabs him claims that he did it in self-defence. So we need to evaluate this claim. We need to think, well, what would have happened if this person hadn't been threatened? And we assume that, you know, if self-defence is a good defence, then he wouldn't have stabbed him. OK, so often answering, addressing counterfactuals can be very challenging because you need to think about alternatives to reality. OK, but what's so impressive about the human mind is we can operate at all three levels of hierarchy. So um, even though as we ascend the hierarchy, the, the representations we need become more rich and more complicated, the point is that we as normal human beings can actually um, reason at all three levels, which is pretty amazing, actually. Mm. Yeah, that is very amazing. And then when I was reading your book, one thing that really surprised me is um, how often that we are already doing these type of inferences in our everyday life, and then we just um, weren't aware of it. So um, that brought me to my next question. Um, so one thing that stuck with me while reading your book is when you talked about how humans are causal thinkers, which means that we're very good at explaining things and coming up with theories that could potentially explain the results, but not so much when it comes to evaluating the evidence or facts that we have in our hands. Why do you think this is? Yeah, well, that's a, another great question. So I, mean, I think cognition is attuned to making sense of the world and building models that allow us to predict and act on it. That's, in, in, in a way, the primary sense of um, cognition. But to properly evaluate models against evidence, we need to go beyond this capacity of just building a model of the world, and we need to reflect on the relationship between our models and the evidence. How good is the evidence? Have we got enough evidence? Can we rule out alternative explanations? So in that sense, evaluating models can be extremely demanding, even for experts. So what I've given you so far is an explanation, but maybe not evidence. But actually, there is a large amount of data and evidence suggesting that um, people do um, need to go beyond just sim simply building models of the world in order to actually evaluate evidence. And this sometimes requires a certain amount of um, metacognition or ability to kind of, if you like, think about our thinking. And, mm -hmm. and that's not easy. So I, as I said, I think primarily we're set up to think about the world and only secondarily are we set up to think about our thinking about the world. And that's potentially, I would argue, why explaining becomes comes more naturally than evaluating. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes total sense. But then um, I was also thinking, uh, sometimes it could be very dangerous if we take um, our explanations or theories as evidence, right? And would you say that's a, a type of bias that in our thinking? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I think that sometimes we come up with more and more explanations for why something's happened. And, and I think we're quite good at coming up with these explanations. I mean, that's a, you know, a great strength we have. But the danger is that unless we kind of check and evaluate, we're in danger of spinning a good explanation, which doesn't actually have any evidence behind it. You know? And I think that's, that, is, that can lead to, to dangers. But, but one thing I'd like to maybe emphasize is that I don't really like the view of the mind as just a biased kind of, you know, a biased machine where, whereby we kind of stumble around with, with a collection of biases, well, a collection of heuristics which lead to biases. So I think that's an overly pessimistic view of um, human reasoning. Mm -hmm. I actually think that um, we actually have an amazing capacity for inventive thinking and causal reasoning. But 
when we're faced with complex problems, inevitably we have to simplify things. And it's when we simplify things that we can, we're prone to errors. Okay. But the key thing for me is that causal reasoning, it's not just like a shortcut rule of thumb or heuristic. It's like the very fabric of how we think. Okay. But when things get complicated, we, we, we take, you know, we have to simplify and, and maybe approximate things. And that's where things can go wrong. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, but I also think what you just mentioned uh, about metacognition is very important. In order to improve um, our thinking or our reasoning, we need to know um, what kind of biases that we're engaging in every day so that we become aware of it and try not to do it as much. So in your book, I know you dedicated a chapter talking about uh, the common biases in our thinking. Can you talk more about these biases that we're prone to experience in our thinking? For example, um, the the two I can think of that you mentioned in your book is one is the zero-sum thinking, and the other one is the conjunction effects. Um, maybe you can tell our audience more about these two types. And the reason I picked out these two is because I was so shocked um, by how easy it was to engage in these types of thinking and how unaware we are of these engagements. And I'm, I have to admit that I'm definitely guilty here. Well, yeah, me too, all the time. <laughs> I mean, in a way, that's partly why, um, you know, their biases, but also they can be, the other side of the coin is that they can be quite a sign that we're actually reasoning pretty well a lot of the time. So, yeah, so the, the zero sum um, that fallacy is saying that we, me with some colleagues, we kind of, if you like, discovered this while we were looking at um, real examples of real legal, legal cases. And um, simply put, it's the idea here is that people assume that if a piece of evidence is equally explained by two competing hypotheses, then, the, then it doesn't provide support for either hypothesis. OK, but this that conclusion only holds under certain conditions, i.e. if the hypotheses are exclusive and exhaustive, and that's often not the case. So I'm an example when we make this much clearer. Um, so suppose that Anne is, I'm just, it could be anyone, let's call her Anne, okay. is accused of um, handling explosives, okay? And um, when she's pulled in for testing, she tests positive for nitrates on her hand, okay? Which is a test for whether you've handled explosives. But equally, it could be that if you've been playing cards, then you'd also test positive for nitrates, okay? And actually she claims she was playing cards. Um, so you have a positive test. So does this give any support for, for the claim, the accusation that she was handling explosives? So it's very natural to think no, because, you know, it, it could be explained by um, her playing cards. Right. But actually, but actually, the positive test does raise the probability that she handled explosives, maybe only a, a little. But also at the same time, it raises the probability that she was playing cards. Both are possible in this case. You know, they don't exclude each other. And, um, and also they're not exhaustive. Uh, so, so this is a really, I think, a nice example of how um, it's, it's tempting to think that just because uh, a bit of evidence is explained by two things, that therefore it can't provide support to one of those things. Okay, it, It's subtle, but I think it's a really important um, aspect of reasoning, which we, we need to get straight on. Um, yeah, so another classic example is the um, conjunction effect. And one of the most well-known examples is Linda, the bank teller. And, and, and then what happens is people judge the conjunction, Linda being a bank teller and a feminist, as more probable than Linda just being a bank teller, based on the profile they get of Linda. Okay. And this violates the basic law of probability, but most people find it quite compelling that it's more likely that she's a feminist bank teller rather than just a bank teller, because that fits with her um, description. 
to give you a, um, a legal example, which actually comes from Kahneman and Tversky as well, um, they argue that if you add a motive to, let, let's say there's someone who's suspected of killing one of their employees. I think that was a great example. Okay. So, so what's the probability that he killed one of their employees? And then they also ask, what's the probability that he killed one of their employees, one of his employees, because he was afraid that the employee might shop him to the police for some, you know, criminal act he's done. Okay. So the the probability of, you know, he's guilty yeah, is higher than the probability that he's guilty because he um, has a motive, i.e. because an employee was trying to shop him to the police. So it looks like people are, conju- uh, you know, committing an error. But actually, if you think about it a bit more carefully, I think it suggests why actually this might not be such a bad thing that we tend to elaborate our stories of what happened. Because obviously we want to understand why the person might have committed the crime. Right. Why is that useful? It's useful because then we can try and gather some evidence to support that version of events. Mm-hmm. Okay, so what happens is once we have some evidence of motive, we then potentially raise the probability that he did it. Okay, so it doesn't mean that it's still true that the story of having that motive and him doing it is less probable than it is that just that he did it. But now that we have some evidence of his motive, we're now increasing the probability that he did it, which is what we really care about. Okay, we don't necessarily care about his motive. We care about whether he did it. And if we can get evidence of motive, that increases the probability that he did it. So this is an example where even though you might be kind of like led into a, strictly speaking, a conjunction error, I actually think that what the mind is doing is trying to make an informative picture of what happened in order to draw draw a firmer conclusion about whether or not he's guilty. Mm -hmm. I, I definitely think there's a lot of um, probabilistic computation going on <laughs> whenever we try to analyze a situation and try to evaluate the evidence. Um, and then I remember earlier you also mentioned um, to use uh, the, either the Bayesian inferences or um, the Pearl hierarchy way of thinking. Uh, one really important thing is that we rely on the prior probabilities. So um is that something that we can just do in our head or um, is that something we need to like have a piece of paper and write down all the probabilities and have a really detailed analysis? Because if we just do it in our head, how reliable is that? Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I think that just trying to rely on doing stuff in our head in a complicated case is actually very difficult. I mean, it's not just the priors, let's say, of the different possible hypotheses. We also need to think about the likelihoods of how likely is the evidence under different hypotheses. And I think that once we get complexity more than two hypotheses, it's, it's going to be very challenging for us. And I think naturally, if we don't write stuff down or whatever, we're going to be um, potentially just sticking with one most likely story as we evaluate the evidence. And then, and that brings in the dangers of just, let's say, confirming a single story and not thinking about alternative explanations. So I do think that even something as simple as writing stuff down is a good start whereby you write down the space of possible hypotheses and you write down the evidence. And I think once you start doing that, then I think using some formal tool like a Bayes net can really help. I'm not saying that we do this for every problem, but I think that if you've got very important legal cases, I think it's worth trying to kind of put it into a Bayes net 
maybe not yeah. worrying about the exact probabilities, but just get the space of alternatives, um, thinking hard about, you know, what's connected to what. And, and as I said, it's a tool to kind of like interact with and help improve your thinking, but laying out what you know, laying out what you don't know. And then it has the additional, you know, um, magic that you can actually do computation <laughs> with it. But I don't think that's as important as it helping you lay out what are the things you need to know, what are the hypotheses you need to consider, how do things interrelate? And, and, and that's very key. And so, so it's not just about laying out your prize, it's also about laying out your model of how things interrelate as well. Mm-hmm. But even you know, getting your prize on the table probably is already a really good, you know, really important start. Yeah. Okay, so now I do have a follow-up question on that. Um, so since we already know that it's um, not very um, easy for us to um, be able to do these probabilistic computations in our head because we need to make decisions fast, right? We can't um, always write down every possible explanation. How can people improve these skills without having to receive, let's say, like a formal academic training and learn all about statistic probabilities like, for example, you talked about using causal inferences as a training tool in your book. Um, how would that work? Can you tell us more about this training tool? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, some, some of this is ongoing, but we have actually done some work using a training tool for people who are um, solving complex probabilistic problems. And they just got like maybe an hour or so just to use the tool, to understand how to use the tool. And then we got them to kind of like um, we we gave them a standard set. Well, not a standard, but we, we we introduced quite complex probability problems, which were based on intelligence analysis or kind of legal cases. And we found that actually the improvement was massive. People were able quite quickly to learn to use the tool sensibly, and actually mm-hmm. then they could use it to really solve these problems. It was an amazing improvement compared with when they just got more generic instructions about probabilities and frequencies and stuff like that. So we were really encouraged by that, but. Another, but still understanding exactly what, you know, how they've been helped is, is a really interesting question. So with some of my PhD students, we've been looking now at giving people, let's say, a legal case or a mm-hmm. health case or something, you know, in the news or whatever, and getting them to draw a causal model while they're figuring through the case. So we get them to draw a causal model in a very simple way. We use an online tool. You can, you know, look it up. It's called Loopy. And literally, you can just draw models and link things and it doesn't it doesn't actually do computation for you but it helps you kind of lay out your model and one really interesting thing we found was that um people we make had a legal case they actually changed their verdicts those people who um drew the model had very different verdicts from those people who didn't draw the model and just had to list what they thought was important so it was really interesting and we were actually quite struck by the change and people did seem to structure their structure the evidence better and also Mm -hmm. they use the probabilities more appropriately so we're very encouraged by this and also in in some separate work um we also presented people with kind of like well-known statistical kind of maybe not fallacies but bad statistical arguments like which involve confounding or things like that and we found that those people who drew out the model um were less likely to kind of subscribe to this false if you like false information or a false a misleading article so this is early days to know exactly what it is and how or why people improve in their judgments but i think that we could you know it's a really um interesting avenue to explore and i think there's a lot of things going on like the interaction with the tool forcing you to think about alternative explanations all that kind of thing and having the visualized 
you know, causal model, I think that helps too. But understanding exactly what's going on is still like ongoing research. But I was really mm-hmm. encouraged and to be honest, slightly surprised how um, mm-hmm. systematic we really how systematically we, we we change people's judgments. So um yeah, yeah. that's incredible. Yeah, I'm honestly shocked to hear that. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing the story with us. The next topic I want to spend a little bit of time on is related to the pandemic that the world is in right now. Um, I know that in your book you dedicated an entire chapter talking about how people and experts conduct causal reasoning as well as engaging in biases during this crisis. And I couldn't help but think um, being logical and rational through a pandemic is almost an impossible task because there are just too many uncertainties and misleading information is everywhere. Um, And then also in another chapter, uh, chapter nine in your book, you talked about telling stories and how distortion in narratives can severely impact our judgment. And given that we live in this mass media era, distorted facts and misleading information is just everywhere. So how do we still make sound judgments in uncertainties? Like, for example, loss of numbers and data is thrown at us each day. How do we interpret them while trying to filter out? potential misinformation or even conspiracies using uh, these models? Yeah, that, well, that's the million-dollar question in a way. <laughs> yeah. well, a great question, and I wish I knew I had a really good answer to that. But I, but I do agree with you that during the COVID crisis, we, you know, we've been assaulted with all kinds of information, often conflicting, different viewpoints from different experts. So it's been really hard to um, know what to think. And yeah. also what's really you know, makes it more kind of compelling in a way is we have to also change our behavior or or do we adapt our behavior? Do we wear masks? Do we get vaccinated? Do we test regularly? What do we do if we've got some symptoms? And so we've got this kind of like real world decision making that we have to make under quite a lot of uncertainty when we're also being given very opposing views. So that's partly why I thought it was such a good example. As I said, I I, I don't have the solution, but I think that you can really see issues playing out like the mm-hmm. so often very potentially simplistic narratives that pushed without much evidence sometimes with very little evidence at all actually and so even already being aware of, of thinking about the difference between pushing out an explanation or a story versus actually the evidence for it and I think even being really aware of that can help um, to a certain extent evaluate some of the claims that have been made. And and there's uncertainty on all sides, to be honest, even in very opposing views. Um, So I think that evidence, you know, I mean, our government used to say, follow the evidence. I mean, I'm not sure whether they ever did that, but um, I think it was a really good thing to say that we really do want to follow the evidence. Yes. Obviously, often you know we might not have enough evidence and we still have to make decisions so that's that, right. that, that's the key thing but i so i would say that um thinking you know the claims made and the rigor and the quality of the data that we've been provided especially let's say for vaccinations and things and also being aware of let's say the scare stories and the counter narratives so it, it's a complex problem but i do think that more careful evaluation of claims and evidence can help see, at least see see way some way through, through through the mess of information we get, and I and I know, and also thinking about the motives and the possible biases of people who are pushing out information is really important. So in a way, it's a bit like a, a legal case writ large. It's like you've got 
two different sides competing with or more than two but at least two you know competing explanations of what's happening and different recommendations and different if you like witnesses who might be experts or they might not be experts and so your job your task in a way is very similar actually to to mm-hmm. evaluating in a legal case so i think that a lot of the principles that I, i've been espousing do apply but i also think that it you know it's not easy to let's say draw up the right base lets and stuff like that and so yeah. how you do as at, at an individual level i think it is a challenge and i think we do need to think for any claim we want to think of alternative explanations for that claim any any evidence for that claim you know those kind of in a way basic principles of evidence evaluation we need to try and you know you know maintain those and i know i mean i haven't been involved in, in it myself but i know there has been work trying to you know on debiasing you know debiasing people making them more less susceptible to being fooled by, by false information so and, and that's ongoing work i think but um yeah so i wish i had the you know the, the golden bullet for this question i don't but what i was encouraged <laughs> by is that lots of the problems and issues that come up were coming up in the COVID crisis, which were very similar to the things that I was talking about in the legal domain. And, I, and ultimately, I do think that our causal reasoning is really important here. So, so we do need to think not only how we can make pretty good, sensible causal inferences, but also just we have to be careful. We, I mean, yeah. I would say we, we can't jump to causal conclusions without good evidence. And actually, there right. were quite a few examples of this early on in the um, crisis. People say, no, you know, maybe this causes... You, you to have more severe reactions, maybe you know different spurious kind of medications and all that kind of stuff. And, and and ultimately, once they got properly evaluated, a lot of those claims went away. But yeah. but I think again, it's like evidence evaluation is just so important, and to be aware that narratives can have almost like a self compelling propulsion doesn't mean they're actually giving you the truth. So it's kind of like for me, it was more illustrating the challenges rather than. You know, I wish I had a simple solution. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so, Dave, could you also uh, give us a few examples of how people make decisions during this COVID crisis using either Bayesian inferences or counterfactual reasoning? Yeah. So, in the final chapter of my book, I had initially planned to just discuss how the themes of the book apply to everyday problems, but then we were immersed in the COVID pandemic. And I realized that lots of the themes that I was discussing in the book actually applied to our reasoning during the COVID crisis. And um, we actually faced you know, many novel problems. And um, we also had this masses of um, information. And I felt that really highlighted also the tensions between how we seek out causal explanations, but also the dangers and the difficulties of actually properly evaluating these claims against evidence. And this played out at a global level how governments and scientists sought to predict and control the spread of the virus, but also at the individual level with the many personal decisions that we had to make, like almost on a daily basis. So for example, and this is one where I think um, Bayesian inference comes in, imagine that you've got, a, you think you've got a mild cold coming on and so you take a lateral flow test and it shows negative, okay? And I'm sure many people have been in this position. So now you think, well, what's the probability that you still have COVID? Okay. And now, actually, um, Bayesian inference is really important here, but it's actually quite complicated. So one thing you need to do is take account of the reliability of the test. You know, how likely is it to give a false negative result? Okay, but you also need to think about things like your prior risk of exposure, your vaccine status, whether you have any other symptoms, have you lost your sense of smell, things like that. And so to do this properly, you actually require a kind of fleshed out causal model. 
And indeed, one thing I noticed was actually the kind of templates that in the book I propose templates to be used for legal arguments. So I say that like for a crime, you need to think about a causal model where you look at both the causes and preconditions of a crime, which is like opportunity, motive, character, means, and also the effects of a crime, which are things like trace evidence, forensic tests, witness reports. Okay. So similarly, we need to use some kind of template to model this question of, you know, what's the probability I've got COVID? You need to think of the, the causes and preconditions like exposure, vaccine status, other risk factors, as well as the potential effects, which will be the symptoms and maybe other test results and things like that. So it's actually quite a complex process. I didn't, you know, it's not as trivial as just thinking, oh, is this a good test? You have to think of quite a few other things. And, and I think causal modelling can help here and actually you may be able to devise some kind of personal um, system which could actually help people, you know, evaluate the likelihood that they have got COVID. And um, in addition, um, the pandemic threw up lots of tricky causal questions. And so um, with regard to counterfactual thinking, I think we had to engage in quite a lot of what-if thinking. And so one example, which is um, I was quite um, involved with, actually. Um, so in the, in the UK, there was a hotly debated question of whether the government should have locked down a bit earlier. And this was, you know, the first wave of infection. And actually, to be honest, it, it's reoccurred, this issue. And so some experts argued that deaths would have been greatly reduced if the UK government had locked down a few weeks earlier. OK, now this involves a counterfactual. So we need to consider how the world would, things would have progressed if we're taking a, a different action, while at the same time drawing on what we learned from what we actually did. So, for example, um, in the actual case, when we did lock down, people complied with instructions pretty well. And that was something that experts weren't sure whether people would do that. So now when we run our counterfactual world and say, OK, what would have happened if we locked down earlier? We can take account of the fact that people actually did comply pretty well and therefore predict that actually people would have complied and, and we might have saved quite a few lives. OK, but the thing is, it's um, it's still difficult. And what's interesting here is actually we're using hindsight to build a better model of what of what would have happened. Okay, so I think that's quite actually quite interesting. But just uh, related to that, we have to be careful because just because um, we use hindsight here, it doesn't mean that we can use hindsight to blame decision makers for making a bad decision because right. the quality of their decision depends on what they knew or, or what they could reasonably have known at the time. So we can, in a sense, use hindsight to play out to work out the causal counterfactual, but we can't always use hindsight to just blame people because maybe they weren't in a position to know. Yes, okay. exactly. I think that's quite interesting. And, and another, uh, finally, in a way, something that I discuss in the book is about how people use stories, in, especially to make sense of complex legal cases. They use stories and it helps them weave a coherent narrative to explain the evidence. And um, they can be great summaries, but also they can help us communicate and maybe even persuade people and, and, and attribute responsibility and blame. So stories are a very important vehicle for us making sense of complex information. Okay. And so this is common in legal cases, but I realized it was, it was going on a lot in, in the COVID crisis. So people were articulating narratives to make sense of things and sometimes to blame people as well. And so there were interesting and competing narratives about, let's say, who or what was to blame for the origins and the initial spread of the virus. Mm -hmm. You know, people talked about bats and wet markets or lab leaks. And I think the key point here is that we have to be really careful about these stories because they can take a life 
take on a life of their own and they can go on without necessarily having good evidential support. So, you know, like there are dangers in this, you know, our propensity for telling stories and getting behind a story. And then I think the danger is that we might then disregard careful gathering and evaluation of the evidence. So I think those are just a few examples of the many things that were going on during the COVID pandemic, where we had to engage in Bayesian inference and causal and counterfactual reasoning pretty much on a daily basis, actually. Yes, thank you, Dave, for sharing these examples with us. Um, I feel that especially the story you shared about the UK government during the crisis, it was exactly the same here in the US. Um, people were talking about, oh, uh, you know, we could have saved a lot of lives if we started the lockdown a lot earlier, using the hindsight to putting blames on people that was happening a lot. I think even till this day, there's still a lot of arguments going on every time I jump on Twitter, there's uh, people talking about, oh, it was a wet market. It was a leak from the lab. Oh, it was this, it was that. Everyone is trying to put a blame on something so that they can make sense of this confusion, the uncertainty, so they can move on with their lives, right? So yeah, yeah thank you so much for sharing the examples with us. Um, I know we've been talking a lot about um, the benefits of using these models to help us reason better. Um, what are some of the disadvantages or challenges that uh, we might face using these models? Is there, if there's any, I'm just curious. Yeah. Okay. I mean, so you mean if we actually start building basenet models? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that I think the dangers. There are dangers, and and, and I think. Some of those dangers are with, and these are things that it's interesting because often I hear people tell me about these dangers, but I kind of agree with them that over, you know, you know, even to build a model, you need to make simplifications. So, so we're already making simplifications by our choice of variables, our choice of links, our choice of priors. So all these simplifications are coming in. And I think it's very dangerous if we're not aware or not as aware of that. So, so I think one thing I often say to people is it's not enough to have a model and parameterize it and then you're done. That's not true at all. You, in some sense, you want a model that you can kind of like assess how well it fits the system you're trying to model. And also you, you can try out, um, for example, different you know variations in probabilities and things like that. You do what is called sensitivities in it sensitivity analysis to kind of evaluate your model but I think it's very dangerous to think that just one model is enough and also we, we have to recognize that there's a plurality of possible models often at different levels of grain or something so I think maybe just because we're modeling it doesn't mean that we're kind of like going to sidestep those problems of what are our variables what are the links between variables and, and in a way I think that human judgment and human influence needs to come in there. Human, even mm -hmm. intuition, needs to come in and help us build these models. So we mustn't think that the, if you like, the tool is doing all the work for us. We, we, we're still there making important choices about what's important and what's not. And I think maybe a danger is that people forget that and they almost think that, that well, it's like a kind of computational system. It, it can, you know, it's, it's bound to be right. You know, we're yeah. that it's incredibly sensitive to what we're putting in. And so, you know, you the old adage, you know, like if you if, if your assumptions are bad and your probabilities are bad, you're going to get rubbish out. Yes. But the data is that you might actually think that rubbish makes, you know, is, is important because it came from a, a base net. So, so in mm -hmm. a way, those things are dangerous, I think. And, and, and hence, I think, why 
maybe the legal profession has been slow to uptake those kinds of um, processes. Because, yeah, I would say that often when people try and do a mathematical approach to legal contexts, they oversimplify. Mm-hmm. And that's really dangerous. And, and what happens is the legal people say, no, it's not as simple as that. And so you get this kind of like impasse. And mm-hmm. so in some sense, I think base nets or causal models take us a bit one step further because they take into account more of the complexity. But they're still not, you know, they're still simplifications. And I think that that we have to be aware of that and we have to be receptive to revising our models, testing them, revising them, trying them out. It's an exploration and also it's a tool. It's a tool that we use along with our own, you know, common sense, intuition. It's a tool. It's not like a replacement for human reasoning. It's a tool like a calculator or, you know, a more elaborate. It's a tool to help us, but doesn't replace our, our, our own intuitive thinking. Yes, I think it's definitely important for us to be aware of the both sides of using these models. Um, and then uh, you touched on briefly on the common sense reasoning, um, which brings me to my next question. So towards the end of your book, you um, mentioned how there still seems to be a long way to go for AI systems to solve crime for us. And mainly because these systems still struggle with common sense reasoning. Um, can you just um, briefly explain to us what common sense reasoning mean here? <laughs> yeah, no, again, a great question, because common sense reasoning can be defined in many different ways. I mean, just just giving a short answer, really, um, a lot of common sense reasoning involves our causal knowledge about the world and how we can reason using that causal knowledge about very simple things like how the world works, you know, like why your cat gets hungry, why she jumps up on the table, all those kinds of things. <laughs> and, um, and, and the point is that AI systems up, up until quite recently, well, even now, struggle with these things because mm-hmm. they tend to focus on very narrow, well-defined problems like playing Go or, you know, or chess or whatever. Yeah. And whereas the real world is kind of messy, messier, and there's more kind of things to know and you're not quite sure what you'll need to know. Okay, and obviously you have to often deal with other people as well. So you need your common sense reasoning about other people. And that's a whole extra dimension of it's complex, but it's not complex in the way that uh, figuring out Go is complex. It's complex in a different way. You have to kind of flexibly adapt to new situations, even situations that might not be part of your training set. And somehow we can do this. Okay, and I've got a really nice example, actually, I just read yesterday. It's from the book Rebooting AI by Marcus and Davis, and they, they're making similar points to what I mentioned in my final chapter. And they, they um, I love this example. So they talk about that there's a scene from The Godfather, which I presume everyone's watched the uh, <laughs> movie, where um, one of the bosses, the mafia bosses, wakes up in the morning and there's a severed head of his favourite racehorse in bed with him. So it's quite a striking, horrific scene. Yeah. And we as viewers and obviously the boss immediately know that this is a, like a, a symbolic threat from his rivals saying, you know, I can easily get to you, you know, and it's and also symbolic at plus he's, you know, it's his favourite resource. But I've got no idea what an AI system would make of this. You know, and the inferences that are, it seems quite simple. We make the inferences straight away, but it's actually quite subtle and how an AI would actually deal with this severed head, which has never been part of its training set. But um, but but having said that, I, I think that I don't think that common sense reasoning is in principle unattainable by AI. Okay, it's mm. it's definitely you know we we've got a long way to go, and I and I would argue um, that mastering causal inference is a crucial step along the way. I mean, it's not the only step, right. but it's a crucial step which still hasn't been fully kind of like fleshed out in a lot of AI systems. So that is a crucial step. 
capturing more common sense reasoning, I think, is a really important aspect. And, and what's nice is in the law, that's juries are supposed to bring their common sense reasoning to make a decision. And in a way, we're not going to be able to replace that kind of common sense that juries bring for a while. So I don't think we're going to be replacing either juries or judges or whatever. So I think it's a nice, a really nice example. But I'm not pessimistic. I think that ultimately we will be able to understand it better and better. I mean, I don't know whether in my lifetime they'll have <laughs> legal computers, you know, testif- you know, testifying or making judgments. But you know, yeah. Knows. I know you might not have an answer for this yet, but um maybe some theories that you have in mind. How would we be able to train these AI systems to have our common sense reasoning? How is that even possible? Right. Well, I think you need to, they need to be kind of like, in some sense, engaged in, you know, physical reasoning. And um, for starters, you know, be able to reason about simple scenes, you know, balls colliding, things falling over, that kind of stuff. So I think Mm -hmm. that's an important start. So you get the kind of the basics of physics, you know, intuitive physics. You know, I think that's a really important start. And also, similarly, getting the basics of intuitive psychology. So you kind of like, basic understanding of why other people do things you know so you've got you need to understand like say the the basic dynamics of objects and cars and whatever but also understand the basic dynamics of people and why they think the way they do and so this is already you know pretty complicated yes and and, um then i but people are making inroads i think so there's some you know interesting work going on where people are trying to build better computational models of how you track objects how you track collisions um, and even how you might track basic kind of intuitive psychology. So I think, you know, that's ongoing work. And then the big challenge, I think, is when you scale up to bigger systems uh, where you have lots of people or people acting, you know, in groups. or And then, it's, you know, obviously the, the complexity is, is going to ratchet up. So, mm-hmm. so I think that let's start simple. Start with simple things like simple physical reasoning, simple psychological reasoning, even maybe what children do, I think is a really good starting place to yeah. try and build computational models. And, and maybe once we once we can get to doing what kids do, I mean, that might, <laughs> that might take a long time. I, mean, I would actually say that one thing I think is going to be a real challenge is the inventiveness of human thought, which comes into play even, you know, for young kids. You know, you think of new ways of doing things and, and, and trying to, you know, capture that computationally, I think, will be um, challenging because it's not just randomness. It's somehow sensible guesses, but they could, could be crazy guesses. Somehow trying to capture that, I think, will be a challenge. But, you know, let's start small and build, you know, build slowly. And, and I think that's the approach that quite a lot of cognitive scientists are, are taking now. And I think that's really, you know, that's the right way to go. Yeah, I, I agree. It's definitely a long way to go. I was just thinking about when you mentioned young children, I was thinking about how, like, children uh, learn things through social settings, like the social learning aspect. I would uh, have a hard time imagining an AI system to um, be able to do social learning <laughs> in any kind of setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, sorry, you know, that's a really good point. I mean, in a way, it's a, it's a great point, but it's also a great challenge, okay? Mm-hmm. So in a way, when people maybe think of us as being, you know, like, biased people bumbling around that's not really true we, we actually have quite sophisticated ways of reasoning about other people mm-hmm. and and as you said the challenge of doing that computationally wow i mean you know that's that is a challenge and so let's let's try and understand it you know let's not assume that a simple model will do it again that's the dangers we don't want to just use 
assume that a simple free variable model is going to allow us to capture the complexities of you know human behavior and how we understand other people but yeah. i don't think that it's in principle unattainable okay even if we never get there i think that we you know some of the tools that we're developing will help us along the way but i mean i completely agree that i think in, in some ways social learning social cognition is is, is the big challenge yeah. and uh, it's what we excel at in many contexts mm-hmm. and it's what you know building ai to do that you know who knows how, how we might do that but you know but small steps along the way yeah 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 <laughs> one step at a time we'll get there <laughs> all right um and my final question um can you share with us some some of the broader impacts that you have in mind for this book i understand that this book uh, features criminal cases and of course uh it would benefit a lot of people in the legal field but who else can benefit from this book Great. Well, well, I actually, it's funny because I, I focus on the legal um, cases because they're just so compelling, as I said, and, and they clearly have important implications. But I would argue that the principles explored in the book actually apply to most domains of human reasoning, whether it's medicine, politics, business, intelligence analysis, or even everyday problems. And we've mm-hmm. discussed that a little bit, but I really think that, I mean, some of the principles might be tailored towards legal evidence, but a lot of them aren't tailored towards legal evidence. It's just any kind of evidence you might get. I mean, there's a really nice, I think there's a a nice quote I I got from um, Bentham about even the cook, you know, when he's trying to decide whether the the roast is ready, he's using using evidence to try and cook, you know, it's a really good example, actually. So I feel that a lot of the principles play out in everyday reasoning. And as I mentioned, you know, every day we're mm-hmm. kind of like a detective trying to figure out what's happening. And even though we might not or seldom draw a base net or make explicit probabilities, we still use intuitive mental models trying to understand causality. And um, and I think this explains why we sometimes can reason so impressively, but also why we might go wrong. So I feel that I would like to think that the message of the book is not just about legal cases. It's it's inspired by legal cases to ultimately think about how people reason about evidence, even in their everyday life. But um, obviously, you know, there's always lots of extra gaps to fill in to make the argument really solid. But I, I just feel that way. And, you know, maybe it's because I'm now influenced by too many crime stories and <laughs> detective things. But I always I often see myself as a detective trying to figure out what's going on. I don't know. about you. Yeah, that's very well said, Dave. Thank you. Um, I know that we're almost out of time here, even though I would love to keep this conversation going for hours. Um, I just want to take a moment uh, to thank you again for joining us on this episode and for sharing with us such inspiring and fun stories about your book. Um, I have finished reading the book already, and I think it's more than fair to say that it's such a treat. And I've learned so much, and it has definitely changed the way of my thinking. Um, And I highly recommend this book to everyone, no matter which field you're in. Thank you so much for writing this book, Dave. Thank you so much, Bella, for all the great questions. You know, you certainly, you know, put me through the mill. I really enjoyed it. But great <laughs> questions. And I'm really pleased. I, I've met at least one person who's read the book. So I feel great. Thank oh, you <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs>